Welcome to It's a Good Life podcast, where it's all about helping entrepreneurs think, feel, and do better. Here's your host, Brian Buffini. Well, top of the morning to you, and welcome to It's a Good Life. I am so excited for you guys today. We have a very, very special guest. Her name is Dr. Maya Shunker, and uh, she is a cognitive neuroscientist, as well as the host of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. She earned her postdoc from Stanford, as well as a PhD from Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, and a BA from Yale, just to throw it in, just because she didn't have enough going on. She then served as a senior advisor to the Obama White House in the chair of the behavioral science team. She is currently the global director of Google Behavior Economics team. But wait, there's more. Maya entered Juilliard School of Music at nine years old and was a private student of Itzhak Perlman. On our podcast, uh, Maya talks with her guests about the not-so-slight change of plans in her life and who we become as a result. So Maya, welcome to the show. Thanks for making time for us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, that's quite the resume you have and uh, extraordinary story. Maybe we can just dive in a little bit before getting into the change of plans and talk a little bit about your background and growing up. Yeah, I'm the child of Indian immigrants. Um, my parents immigrated here in the 1970s, and my mom brought with her my grandmother's violin. Um, my, my grandmother had played Eastern classical music. And so when my mom immigrated here, that was one of the things that she ended up bringing along with her for the journey. And when I was around six years old, my mom brought down the violin from the attic and showed it to me. And I think it really just meant to show it to me. My other three siblings had deemed the violin too, quote, uncool for them. (laughs) Um, But for me, apparently, I was sufficiently uncool to love it. And so she opened up the box and I got to see the instrument and I was just immediately taken by it. I very quickly asked for a pint-sized violin of my own. And that began this extremely intense, fierce devotion to learning this craft. And my mom says to this day that, you know, while she had to motivate me to use gentle terms to do lots of things, uh, practicing the violin was just never one of them. I, I really just fell in love with it from such an early age. And off to the races you go. And I, I love the story. I'm an immigrant myself from Ireland, and I can relate a lot when I've heard you on many occasions talk about your folks and uh, how driven and focused they, they are. And I love the story of getting into Juilliard and your mom. Oh, yeah. And it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it just, and in today's world, it's kind of startling to think of this. But maybe you could just kind of give us a little story on that and the background. Absolutely. She was so fearless. So You know, she shows me the violin at age six. I start playing and very quickly she starts realizing, wow, my daughter has big dreams for herself in this violin world. And I have no connections into the Western classical music space. You know, my dad is a theoretical physics professor. My mom was a physics major. You know, they don't have any of the vehicles for connecting me with the kinds of opportunities that I was hoping for. And so she knew that one of my big goals was to, at some point, audition for the Juilliard School of Music in New York. But I also was probably not super (laughs) well poised to actually get admitted at the time. But we were in New York walking by the Juilliard School's building. And my mom said, why don't we just go in? I said, what do you mean just go in? We have no invitation, mom. We can't just walk into the building. She's like, what's the worst thing that can happen? And I was, you know, so embarrassed and like the security guards are going to get us. Um, But we, we waltzed in there unannounced, uninvited. And my mom strikes up a conversation with a fellow student and her mom in the elevator and explains to her, oh, you know, my daughter Maya loves the violin. And I was just wondering if maybe you can introduce her to your teacher after your lessons over today. And you know, Brian, the kindness of strangers, they said yes. They made the introduction. 
I ended up auditioning for that teacher on the spot, and he accepted me into a summer boot camp in which he essentially brought me from never having had a chance at getting into Juilliard to having a chance of getting into Juilliard. And I I say this with no false humility. Um, When my mom later asked him about that, he said, oh, yeah, I thought Maya had no chance. I just liked her personality. (laughs) So I took her on. Um, But what that experience taught me, Brian, is that you know, sometimes life doesn't hand you the silver platter and you just have to kind of make it for yourself. And that's exactly what my mom did with her boldness. She said, look, I can't just wait for this opportunity to present itself for Maya to get connected to the relevant teachers she needs to reach her dreams. So I'm just going to make it happen. Right. And so starting that fall, every weekend, um, Saturdays, my mom and I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning and take the train from Connecticut to New York for about 10 hours of lessons over the course of the day mm. and would come back late at night. And um, it was a dream come true for me, honestly, um, to to be able to immerse myself in this world that I, I really loved. Well, you know what happens all the time? Because I've been a student of success. I came to America, 92 bucks in my wallet, you know, the typical immigrant story. And I was going to be a soccer player. I had my own kind of radical change of plans when a Buick decided to take me off a motorcycle. But many people think it's luck or timing or whatever. And you can certainly talk about being in the right place at the right time. But when I hear a story like yours, and one of the reasons I reached out to my team and I said, I got to interview this lady. Mm -hmm. First of all, your mom was fearless. Second of all, she asked. Third, she explained her philosophy. What's the worst that could happen? Now, you're as you're going, man, there's a few things that could go wrong with this, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, Let me take my list up. But for her, the application was, and I get this certainly as an immigrant, hey, let's go try. What's the worst thing that can happen? And then with that, develop the relationship, talk to a student, and then ask a specific question. Hey, we'd love to meet your teacher after your lesson's over. Then there's one other thing, which, which maybe not a lot of people talk about. You had to have the courage. You were equally fearless. The acorn didn't fall far from the oak tree to stand there. You were nine years old at the time. Yeah. And okay, you're in front of a professor at Juilliard. Okay, <laughs> go. Play. And you'd put in the work and you'd put in the time, but you, were, you, you went for it as well. And so the next thing you know, he's like, okay, you had good attitude, good energy, good personality. And, and maybe the professor's being a little facetious. Oh, I didn't think she'd make it. But the truth of the matter is, you did enough. <laughs> <He> saw something. <laughs> you did enough to get to the camp. That's right. And then following the camp, here's a little thing you just passed by. Oh, here's the 10 hours a day of practice. And, and the ethic and the work and the concentration and the energy that goes into that. And then it's very easy for people to say, she was just lucky. Just in the right place at the right time. And, and yes, I can see that flavoring, but so many times people miss out. And that's why when I love interviewing somebody like yourself, to really spell it out for people, like here's the steps that were taken. And I guarantee you, these are steps you've taken many times in your life since that journey. I love, I love that you put a point on that, Brian, because, you know, obviously luck plays a role in all of this. But you need to have put in so much hard work that when that lucky moment arises, you're able to seize the opportunity. Right. And... um that's the unglamorous side of the story, which is in advance of me going to New York that day as a little kid, I was practicing hours a day, Mm -hmm. you know, but that was such a necessary part of the equation. And so I love your highlighting that. Of course, it's a combination of lots of factors that are outside of your control, but focusing on the one thing you can control, which is to be ready in the moment that life might grant you um, is, is such a critical piece. Right. 
Well, they, they always called Thomas Edison a genius. And he kept saying, genius comes dressed in overalls and looks a lot like work. <laughs> so, uh, oh, away well you go. Said. <laughs> so you go on, you end up being a, a private student of Itzhak Perlman, which, you know, he's one of my all-time favorites yeah. of anything in the world. And how old were you when you first started uh, working with him? I think I was 13. Wow. I played for him just one time. And... You know, I was pretty self-critical as a kid. I guess I still am. Um, but I remember thinking, oh, man, I bombed that interview. I shouldn't have watched Britney Spears on MTV as much as I did. That was my that was my form of rebellion, Brian, back in the day, the 90s. Um, and but then he reached out to to my teacher at the time and said, I'd like to teach her privately. I'd like to take her on as a private student. And he only had a handful of students at the time. And so that was astonishing for me. You know, I think it has a similar thread to what my first teacher saw in me, which was he said, yeah, you know, her technique might not have been that great. You know, she was definitely not the most advanced on a technical level, but I felt like she had something to say. Mm. I felt like there was some emotion that she was bringing mm. to her music. And I do wonder in, in hindsight if that's because my mom absolutely insisted that we kids had these well-rounded lives. You know, as much mm. as I love the violin, she was making sure that I was also in soccer practice and then I was also taking drama classes and art classes. And so she really wanted to ensure that we were living life outside of the narrow pursuits that capture us right. to make sure that there was even something to bring to the music, right? If you only are in a room by yourself practicing for hours a day, what are you calling upon mm -hmm. from an emotional place when it comes to, to what you produce? You're going from Juilliard to a private student of Itzhak Perlman. The career is set. The path is here. And I know you've pushed back against the term prodigy because you dug it out of the dirt, as they say. You worked hard for your place in life. And then one day you have the very significant change of plans, and you get an injury. And I think most people would have no idea how physical it is to play an instrument over and over and over again. But you had an injury that caused a basically your trajectory for your whole career, your dreams, your path changes almost in an instant. Yeah, I like to think that I made violin an extreme sport, so <laughs> I'd like some street cred for that. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I felt like I was on the up and up and everything was aligning, and I had this very naive moment of like, ah, you know, Finally, everything's fallen into place. I have total control. Yeah. I can see the future very clearly. It's going to involve my being a professional violinist. And then I had my, quote, slight change of plans, which is, you know, what my podcast, The Slight Change of Plans, is actually inspired by, right. where in a moment I tore a tendon in my hand and despite resisting doctor's guidance for months, was eventually told that I could never play the violin again. So in a moment, this thing that has defined me at my core, who has made me who I am up until that point, is just taken away from me. And I just remember feeling so disoriented by that loss because, you know, as a kid, you're not always spending time in reflection mode. Um, maybe the most precocious kids are, but I, I don't think I was. And it was only when the violin was taken away from me that I realized just how much it had defined me. Um, that without it, I felt like I you know, I lost this instrument, but I lost myself. I lost such a large part of who I was. And right. it took me a long time to figure out how to ground myself again and, and figure out who I could be without the violin. Mm. I so can relate to that. I mean, when I had my motorcycle accident, when I came to the States, I was, mm. you know, an Irish sports guy. I won national championships. I was, that was going to be my path. And then in an instant, I get hit by this car, basically the Tiger Woods type injury, yeah. rods and screws and all that stuff. That was difficult. Two years and 13 surgeries. That was painful. What was really painful is I'd lost my own sense of identity. 
And I also was aware of, my gosh, like that's what my whole identity was in. And that's why I believe this chord with a change of plans is such a significant thing and why you've hit such a chord with people because many of us have had this same experience over and over again throughout our lives. We're going to take a fast forward here, but, you know, obviously you have the dream is gone. You're still a young girl, although you've poured hours and hours into this. How does you go from there to the field of cognitive science? That just seems to be a very significant change altogether. Yeah, there's this interesting principle in cognitive science called identity foreclosure, and Mm. it refers to the fact that we do foreclose on an identity often prematurely and without having been fully exploratory about all of the identities that we can embody, all of the ways that we can be. And looking back, I absolutely fell prey to identity foreclosure. As I mentioned, I was first and foremost a violinist. And so what that experience taught me is that I had to start to see my identity as more malleable, as something that could change over time. And importantly, I learned that it might be more stable and sturdy to attach my identity not to any specific pursuits like the violin, but instead to the features of that pursuit that really lit me up, that got me to tick. And what I realized when it came to the violin is that the thing that really energized me at the end of the day, if you strip away the superficial features of of, of playing an, an instrument, was the ability to emotionally connect with other people. Mm-hmm. I, I remember feeling this incredible excitement on stage where you're playing for people you've never even met before. And yet there's this emotional intimacy in the air. You have the ability to make people feel something they might have never felt before. And I think looking back, I realized, ah, okay, that's the thing that was propelling me forward is that I loved human connection. I loved understanding what could make people feel things. And because of that and the sturdiness of, again, attaching yourself to the features of the thing versus the thing itself, I was then able to figure out, okay, well, how else can this express itself in my life, this love of human connection and understanding connection? And so, you know, by the way, all of this is current day reflections. I'm not sure, sure. I was... Yeah, you weren't thinking that at 15, yeah, with your arm in a can. Yeah, exactly. You're just kind of figuring out where your passions lie. And sure. but now I can put the pieces together and see, oh, there's this through line through all mm-hmm. of my seemingly disparate experiences, which is a thirst for human connection. And so I stumbled upon a book on, on the science of the human mind. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being absolutely in awe of this organ, of, of our minds, of our brains, and thinking, wow, I would love to discover what it is that makes us human, you know, at the end of the day. And I ended up studying this field for years. You know, I got my undergrad degree in cognitive science, then I got a PhD in cognitive psychology, then a postdoc in cognitive neuroscience. And, you know, for that stretch of time, I was just immersed in this world of understanding how it is that we are the way we are, why we are the way we are, and in many ways, how it is we're even able to connect with other human beings. And so I think that was the thing that kind of threaded the needle for me. You found a new instrument. You went from the the violin (laughs) to the brain. And it's, uh, right, it's such a deep and powerful instrument itself that we still are exploring the depths of, much like space exploration. You know, we we understand so little still. And Brian, by the way, to that point, like I see that same passion expressed today with my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. I mean, it came from a desire in 2020 to connect with people because I wasn't able to do so in my day-to-day life because of the pandemic. And um, the podcast is the ultimate expression of this desire for um, forging deep human emotional connections. I'm sure you experience this all the time with your show where you're meeting people you've never met before. You can cut through all the pleasantries and within moments 
You're talking about, you know, the hardest moments of a person's life, the most transformative moments of a person's life. And so I really do feel like that thread has continued because I see it expressed even in the love of my current life, which is this show that I'm creating. Yeah, that's amazing. Oh, and my husband. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, he made it. That's good. He made it. Yeah. Number two. Yeah, Second to a slight change of plans. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. And and I, one of the things that kind of, because I, I, my profession took me to the stage where we were ballrooms and convention centers and thousands of people at a time. And yet then, you know, I did this to support this network we already have. And I, I was, the thing that surprised me about this format is how intimate it is mm. in both interview and then when people are listening. You know, people can receive very deep and profound input because they're just usually by themselves. When they're, when they're listening to a podcast or, or watching on YouTube, they're, they're normally in a very intimate setting. It's, they're normally, you know, they're walking, they're in their commute, they're working out. They're typically by themselves. People aren't sitting around at night like they did, you know, listening to the radio 50 years ago or watching the TV. It's like, oh, Friends is on. Okay, no, here's a change of plans. And so you can really cover some deep stuff. I, 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 let's dive in there if we can. Sure. You know, what has been the the light bulb experience you've had with doing this show and, you know, sharing this experience that maybe you didn't think was as common, but all of a sudden everybody seems to be able to relate to this. Everybody on the planet has had a slight change of plans many times in their life. And and then during the pandemic, a major change of plans that was handed to us all. Where have you really found the connection points with the show and and, uh, its listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think I... I came to the show with a lot of humility because as someone who, you know, has studied the science of change, I felt like in this moment in my life where I was, everyone else in the world was navigating this unprecedented moment, I remember feeling very intimidated by the specifics of the changes that were happening to us. And in my personal life, too, my husband and I were grieving a miscarriage that had happened with our our surrogate. And I just remember thinking, I've never gone through these particular changes before, and I don't know how to navigate this moment. And it was then that I put on my cognitive science hat and realized, okay, um, the specifics of this moment may be unprecedented, but our human ability to navigate change is nothing new. We've done this rodeo umpteen times just by virtue of being human. And in that moment, there was this light bulb, which was, I don't need to have gone through this experience to then know how to respond to it in the future. I can look back on my own life of navigating change that doesn't quite look like the changes I'm going through now. I can look to other people's experiences and mine wisdom from their stories, even if their stories don't look exactly like mine. Right. And that's because we all share this underlying psychology that propels us through these moments. And it was a very powerful realization to recognize in that moment that there is a universality in the way that we as humans navigate change. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that now echoed from my listeners where, you know, a slight change of plans covers such a broad range of stories. I mean, we hear from a black jazz musician who convinces members of the Ku Klux Klan to leave the Klan. And then we hear from a woman who goes blind in her early 20s and then goes on to win the U.S. TV show Master Chef. And then we hear from a 30-something who spent his entire adult life trying to maximize for his future health and then gets a stage four cancer diagnosis in the middle of quarantine and has to get his leg amputated. And so these stories are so different. And by the way, then my own slight change of plans, I, I, I put out a very personal episode last fall called Maya's Slight Change of Plans, which is about my husband and I navigating, you know, multiple miscarriages on our journey to, to hopefully at some point become parents. And so the stories look so different, Brian. But what I'm learning again is that underneath the surface, the psychological strategies we use sometimes to navigate those moments can actually be quite similar. And so it's empowering to know 
from listeners that they're learning from stories that don't look like their own. Um, and that, I think, has been the most beautiful discovery of this whole thing, which is there's so much that we can learn through the stories that other people tell us. And I feel enriched as a result of this. Like, yeah. you know, I, I record these interviews and I'm an executive producer on the show and I help edit the show. And um, I'm hearing these episodes over and over again. And yet still, I'll be making a peanut butter sandwich months later. And some line that one of my guests shared with me enters my my head and I feel moved by it in a different way than I did when I initially heard it just because of the phase of life that I'm in. Sure. And so I just feel like it's such a generative set of insights as well. Let me get into some how-tos. I'm a big how-to guy. We have a sure. coaching company. We're really into, you know, as far as change is concerned, we know how difficult change is, but we have tens of thousands of people we coach with our organization through the process of change in their business and life. What are the common denominators you would say to how someone adapts to a slight change of plans and they do it well? What would be some of the common denominators of when they do it poorly? Yeah. Well, so one is recognizing that at our core, we as humans just tend to dislike uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So there's a research study showing that people who had a smaller chance of getting an electric shock were far more stressed out than people who had far more certainty that it was going to happen. Um, so we'd, be, we'd rather be certain that a bad thing is going to happen than have to cope with feelings of uncertainty. Mm -hmm. And um, I think one thing that I've tried to do in terms of a, a tip for listeners is to change my relationship with uncertainty and actually build a stronger identity with it. And so mm. I've actually tried to, we, we know from research on identity priming that we tend to act in ways that align with our current social identities or our aspirational identities. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to start identifying myself as someone who excels during times of uncertainty, as right. someone who's challenge-oriented, yep. who doesn't need what we call cognitive closure, which is a reduction of ambiguity, but actually someone who thrives in, in the face of ambiguity. Right. And that change won't happen overnight. It's not like you can give yourself a label and suddenly, you know, my personality changes. But this is absolutely a mindset that people can cultivate over time, which is instead of running away from uncertainty and change, we actually pride ourselves as the type of people who can thrive in it. Right. We know that that can in turn affect behavior. Yeah. Another thing that I would I would share that I've learned from my guests is, you know, we tend to be really bad cognitive forecasters. We're really bad at predicting, for example, the types of things that will make us happy or unhappy in the future. Right. And that is absolutely true in the domain of change as well. We tend to have these overly simplistic models of how the big changes in our lives will change us. And I think that's because when we think about a change and how it will affect us, we tend to focus very narrowly on the specific change itself, almost as though that change is operating in a vacuum. And so we think about the most obvious things that might result from that change. Okay, I'm navigating a cancer diagnosis. Okay, I'm navigating a new relationship. Okay, I'm navigating a promotion, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But our lives and our psychology are so complex. And what that fails to appreciate is that change in one area of our lives often have profound spillover effects into other areas of our lives that we simply can't predict at the outset. And so what my guests have often been surprised by is that changes that they initially coded as exclusively good or exclusively bad mm -hmm. tend to have a lot more complexity around them, mm -hmm. that they ended up changing in these unexpected ways, and that what was actually important at the beginning of their change experience was to approach change with a profound amount of humility. Yes. To not try and bucket it into good or bad, but to actually yeah. see these changes as actually having the nuance and complexity that they genuinely do. Right. And so I found a lot of power in, again, having humility in the face of change, auditing myself and how I'm changing in unexpected ways in the face of change, sometimes good, sometimes bad. And 
at a minimum, there will be growth because change necessarily involves a loss of identity of some kind, right? And as we grapple with those new identities, as we grapple with that kind of adjustment, you will at a minimum see growth of some kind. And so I think that there's an optimism there that I now carry, um, which is to just see change as a far more nuanced (laughs) psychological space that we occupy. Beautiful stuff. I mean, there's so much there. I can tell why you're busy all the time with all your episodes. One of the dynamics is, because I'm also interested in transformation and change. Yeah. And one of the things I've repeatedly heard people who do well when change happens to them as much as when they happen to change is the ability to be present Mm. and the ability to be present in the here and now. And, And many people who had huge success stories in their life will talk often about what they would catch themselves doing is project their past into their future. Mm. And that's where all the anxiety comes. And that's why, you know, my mom used to say, the only person who likes change is the baby with the wet diaper. Right? <laughs> and, and that most people resist it, right? And we, people become hostile to it and divided over it. And it's a lack of control and a lack of identity. And these are very foundational things. And next thing you know, people are having identity crises over these things. And I've just repeatedly seen people who've done well with change, the ability to stay present and then couple that with what you're talking about is the humility to come with it. And I actually don't know how this is going to turn out. Like, I know I have experiences, but I have no idea how this is going to turn out. I had a conversation with a young man last night who had a specific path. He wanted to be a professional basketball player. And one thing after another, these doors are closing. Mm. And he kept saying, these doors are closing, these doors are closing. And I go, well, maybe it's a corridor. Maybe it's a corridor. You know, what's happening is that door's closing and that door's closing and that door's closing. And maybe there's a door down the end here. That's the door you really want to walk through. And it's been interesting. I've been helping this young man and he was ready to play professional basketball. He was going through all these different applications. I keep asking him and asking him different questions. And now he's talking about being a coach and how Mm -hmm. perhaps that's what he wanted to do all along. And all these opportunities to play that were, oh, my hopes are dashed, my hopes are dashed, this didn't work out. And you can get frustrated, you can get angry, you can get bitter, you can get resentful, or those doors closing are actually a corridor and there's something really good down there. If you can stay in the present so you can think clearly and then stay humble so you can learn from it, that does seem to be a pretty willing formula for dealing with change. Yeah, I love that. And I think, um, you know, to your point about being present-minded, I mean, I will caveat this by saying, I think we can sometimes be too hard on ourselves around the fact that we do spend a lot of time in the past and the future. And Mm -hmm. I almost want to be a lobbyist for the past and the future because it actually is a singular human ability that we can spend our time mentally time traveling and Mm -hmm. revisiting parts of the past to learn from our our experiences or visiting the future when the present, quite frankly, sucks and we need an escape or we want to dream big and have our imaginations run wild so that we can innovate. So I I do want to caveat this by saying, be compassionate with yourself. There's no world in which you will be fully in the present. And I also think that that would be a less rich human experience to have. You don't want to live your life fully in the present because you're denying yourself all those learning experiences from the past and all of these future aspirations. It's all of the above, right? You got to learn from your past. You got to be looking towards the future, something to hope for. Yes. And And it's okay sometimes to experience negative emotions because those are very instructive and they teach you important things. But with all that said, there is absolutely research showing the value of some of this present-mindedness. And what comes to mind is the importance of inviting what we call awe-inspiring experiences into your life. So mm. there's this really fascinating study. I was talking about this with my friend Ethan Cross. He's a professor of psychology. Oh, yeah. We've had and, Ethan as a guest, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. I love Ethan. Um, but, you know, he shares that there's there's a study where patients were recovering from surgery And they were either assigned to a room that looked out onto a small set of trees or a room that had a view of a brick wall. And what they found is that the people who had just a small glimpse into nature 
recovered faster from their operations, Mm -hmm. took fewer painkillers, and were evaluated as being more emotionally resilient than those patients who had a brick wall. And again, Mm. they're not looking onto Yosemite Valley. We're talking about just a couple trees, right? right. (laughs) Um, But I think the mechanism at play here is that having this present-mindedness and having these feelings of awe and beauty in the moment allow Mm. us to think beyond our own needs, our own wants, our own anxieties. And so what happens is that there's this really helpful distancing where we kind of see ourselves and our own lives with more perspective. And, you know, there's even neuroscience research showing that the parts of our brains that are associated with self-immersion decrease when we're experiencing these awe-inspiring experiences. And so that can be another technique for your listeners. It's not hard to find. I mean, you can literally just look up at the sky at night. I I love this finding because it's accessible to everybody. Hmm. Um, They even find that you don't even need nature itself. You can look at pictures of nature. You can look at a screensaver of nature. But these small glimpses of things that bring us awe can contextualize our problems, put us into a better frame of mind, and in turn be more resilient yeah. and and more open, right? So we talked about this concept of cognitive closure, which is the need to like reduce ambiguity. When you are more open-minded, you are seeking awe. That actually helps you cultivate a more resilient personality in the face of change. For sure. For sure. Well, change is constant. And it's never ending. I think you'll be uh, doing this show a long time, my dear, and you do it so well. And I I think it's really helpful. And I think it's really helpful when you share the examples of people who've gone through their slight or sometimes not so slight. (laughs) It's meant to be, yeah, it's meant to be a cheeky title because these changes are big changes. But I think, (laughs) you know, your your listeners are clearly so curious about the science behind all of this. And one thing that's been exciting about the show is that in addition to the personal narratives that we have, I do invite on experts to the show. So people like Adam Mm -hmm. Grant and Ethan Cross and Katie Milkman um, and Andy Duke, who talks about the science of quitting, they all come on the show and they share what the science says about how we navigate change and, and concrete strategies that we can use uh, to better navigate change. So I imagine they'll enjoy the, the science episodes as well. For sure. You know, it's interesting. Like here we are, we help small business owners. We're a coaching company. We had Ethan Cross like just two weeks ago at one of our key events and people just yes. ate it up because these are the dynamics of what they're dealing with in everyday life trying to solve problems, trying to go through it. And here's all these great minds and great insight and a fresh approach to this arena, which really is special. And you are a fresh voice in this arena. And I'm I'm so excited. I've been around the growth business for 35 years, and it's really exciting to see what you're doing. And we're so, so thankful you could join us today. Uh, as we finish up here today, Maya, I have five questions I ask okay, everybody. let's do it. Like everyone else, you don't know what's coming, so I just ask you these five. And our listeners get to compare them to all the other people they have and get an insight to you. So what's the single best piece of advice you've ever received? To think like an entrepreneur. So this is advice I got from Mm. my White House boss. I was joining the federal government. I had these big dreams to build out a behavioral science team, but I was given no budget and no mandate. And he said, I refer to all of my team members as policy entrepreneurs. And I was thinking, Mm. WTF, I don't think the word entrepreneur and federal government go together, right? Bureaucracy, red tape. (laughs) Um, But that mindset shift was so critical because I approached the enterprise Mm. as though I was building a startup in my parents' basement and I had to be super resourceful. I had to find creative workarounds. I had to generate lots of organic interest in my government agency colleagues. And, you know, eventually we got to a point where we had built the team and President Obama signed an executive order and is actually a formal part of government. But it was that scrappy vibe that I think got me to that point. And I've used that same entrepreneurial mindset in many other spaces since. Sure. Including uh, yes. your new show. <laughs> and as we have 500,000 entrepreneurs listening to this show, they're they're pumping the air and excited uh, that you think like one of yeah, them. Yeah. Thank you for all your wisdom, entrepreneurs. It's helped me in my personal <laughs> life. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's great. What's the one talent or gift you wish you possessed that you currently oh, don't? That's such a good one. So I think um, I find music writing to be one of the most incredible abilities that we have. And I have no talent for it whatsoever. But I, I find that, you know, I, I played music, right? And I'm a fan of all kinds of right. music, like pop, hip hop, all of it. I find it is so remarkable that a particular constellation of notes can get my heart racing mm. and feeling things that are almost otherworldly. And if you just tweak and you just move one note out of that sequence to the end, you no longer feel anything. And so I've always just mm. been really captivated by what it is that makes for a great hook. And I don't oh, have this ability, but great. I'm in awe of all the Taylor Swifts of the world who seem to have cracked that nut. <laughs> so you've evolved, okay? You've gone from Brittany to Taylor. Yeah, that's it. right. <laughs> now, what I will say to you is that I've asked this of 500 people and from the Magic Johnsons and the Jay Leno's to the great sports stars to huge entrepreneurs and billionaires – and 95% of them say, I wish you could play an instrument or I wish you could play an instrument in public on stage. Wow, so that's that so fun. I'm going to say 95%. <laughs> I'm talking about billionaires to sportsmen to government people, you name it, giant entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, 95, and I might be short wow. on that number, say, I wish I could play an instrument and I wish I could play it on stage in front of people. So there you go. And you're like, hey, I can do that. I wish I could write the music. So isn't that fabulous? Okay, what's the book that's been most instrumental mm. in your life? Yeah, it's that book I discovered right before college. Uh, it's called The Language Instinct by mm -hmm. Steven Pinker. And it details our miraculous ability to comprehend and speak language and the, the mm. incredibly sophisticated cognitive architecture that's operating behind the scenes as we go about our day-to-day -day lives and often things we just take for granted. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And again, we have a big book buying uh, audience, so they'll be all researching <laughs> the language instinct. That's great. Okay. Is there a movie? You're scrolling through the TV. It's a night. You just need to, you're sitting with your hubby and you're just trying to veg and you're scrolling and there's one movie and you've just, this is a movie you just watch over and over again. It doesn't matter how many times it's on, you'll stop. What's the movie you'll watch over and over again? Back to the Future. Come on. Now tell Brilliant. me about that. Oh, my gosh. I think the concept is just brilliant. Of And, and maybe it's because I'm trained as a cognitive scientist. Yeah. And I'm so curious about all the counterfactual worlds that we can occupy. I think about them all the time. And I think that movie exemplifies what it is like to live that alternate reality. Um, and it just, I mean, the acting is phenomenal. And actually, it's also, it's got some personal resonance for me. So when, when I first met the man who's now my husband, um, I had a big crush on him. And I was trying to woo him, get him to like me back. And I remember going to, this is back in the day of when people were using Facebook. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I, I noticed on his Facebook page that Back to the Future was one of his favorite movies. And nice. it was also one of mine. So at the dinner party a few weeks later, apropos of nothing, I was like, hey, uh, speaking of great movies... <laughs> You know what movie I love, Jimmy? Back to the Future. <laughs> so I like to think it actually was a catalyst for, you, you know, my now happy marriage. <laughs> there it is. Hey, when you got it, use it. That's awesome. That is awesome. Last but not least, uh, when you hear the term the good life, what does that mm -hmm. mean to you today? Uh, today, I think it means being kind. Hmm. Um, I think we're living in a in a moment where we feel particularly disconnected from others because of the pandemic, but also just because of the extreme polarization that's happening. And mm. I really make it a point to engage in small moments with others. And by that, I mean, when I'm going for a walk, or I'm picking up a cup of coffee, or I'm just seeing a passerby, 
I really try to make eye contact. And if I'm not wearing a mask, smile at them. Mm -hmm. I think those really small moments of connection between strangers can go a long way. Mm -hmm. And so that's something I've been focusing on. Wow, that is a great one. And you've been very, very kind to spend your time with us today. We love your show, A Slight Change of Plans. I know our uh, audience will enjoy what you do and who you do it with. Uh, you're making a big difference and you found a new instrument to play. And uh, <laughs> we're just excited for you, delighted to have you here today. And, and you've been a blessing to us and our audience today and want to thank you and wish you nothing but the best in your future <laughs> Thanks success. Thanks so much, Brian. And whatever change of plans come your way. <laughs> You're such a delight to talk to. So I really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. It's been a great time. And we finished today the way we always finish with my 91-year-old mom, who over the course of her 91 years has seen a lot of change in plans. But she keeps on ticking like a Timex watch. And she has a blessing for all of us today, a good word. And maybe this is a kind word for you today as we end our show. Until next time, we'll see you then. May the road rise up to meet you. And may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sun shine warm upon your face. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time. Mm-hmm.